Hey everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Grizzly History. We're going to be taking a detour from the Ends of the Earth series to bring you a story that just had to come out today. And that's because today marks the 119th anniversary of one of Latin America's most bizarre but consequential stories. It is a strange quirk in the big scheme of how corporations exploited the people and resources of impoverished or otherwise less powerful nations. You may or may not be aware of how agricultural interests in the late 19th and early 20th century led to governments being overturned with a kind of corporate colonialism that was enforced under the auspices of more powerful nations. There's the big stories like of how businessmen in Hawaii overthrew the reigning kingdom and made themselves rich off the island's sugar and pineapples, creating companies like Dole Fruit. Or there is the Chiquita brand, which today we associate with bananas. But in fact, Chiquita was originally known as the United Fruit Company, a company that created literal banana republics across the Caribbean and Latin America. These are all relatively well-known stories, but what if I told you that big fruit companies operating in the area almost had a rival in a different food industry? Today's story is about the 1903 Poisson de Avril disaster and about the failed attempt 119 years ago to bring a more dairy-focused republic to Venezuela. At the turn of the 20th century, the Venezuelan economy was in dire straits. The country had been in on-again, off-again civil wars for close to a decade, which saw periods of near-anarchy, and the Venezuelan government was forced to take out increasingly steep loans. Many of these loans were issued by industrialists in Germany, France, Belgium, Spain, and Italy, who rebuilt and expanded the infrastructure in the struggling nation. As internal conflicts raged on, Venezuela began defaulting on loans in mass. So much so that in 1901, strongman President Castro Ruiz refused to honor Venezuela's foreign debts. The industrialists were not about to have that, and so this led to the Venezuelan crisis of 1902 to 1903 during which the German, British, and Italian navies blockaded the country and forced the president to agree to terms. Now, in the background of all this, President Theodore Roosevelt was flexing the Monroe Doctrine on the European governments. But nevertheless, Castro Ruiz was forced into an agreement which saw him committing a staggering 30% of the nation's customs duties back to their debts. The president needed liquidity and fast to shore up the country's turbulent finances. And that is where the Nestle Corporation stepped in. Now, Nestle had been a company for about 45 years at this point, and most of its money was focused in milk chocolate. Towards the end of the century, they applied greater and greater focus to lactose-based products expanding into condensed milk. But around the turn of the century, the company wanted to try something new and break into a market that had been growing for some time, the cheese market. You see, at the time, Nestle's marketing was really playing up their authentic Swiss roots to appeal to an international community. And in the midst of the crisis, they saw the opportunity to expand their portfolio by marketing traditional Venezuelan goat cheese. So near the end of 1902, 
just as a repayment plan to Europe was being finalized. Nestle sent representatives to parlay with the president's office directly, and he agreed to sell the company land in the western mountains overlooking Lago de Maricabo to raise goats and develop mass-produced cheese staffed by local indigenous people. The company promised that 10% of the proceeds would be kicked back directly to the government, and with a riotous public and hungry army to feed, Castro Ruiz agreed quickly. So Nestle wanted to make sure that the venture got off on the right foot, and so they sent in a reliable manager from their chocolate operation in Mali. His name was Jacques Muevas Enfure, and he had done much to keep the chocolate flowing from the Ivory Coast by recruiting and retaining child laborers. He did this through the same strong-arm policy inspired by Mexican President Diaz's Pan-O-Palo strategy of keeping the peace, which means bread or the stick. Muevas Enfior's maxim was pan u muerd, literally bread or shit. The child laborers got to eat one at the end of the workday, depending on their performance. Although, I will say, from what I've read, he was actually humane enough to uh, not feed them excrement, but actually would take some of the raw cocoa, mix it with water uh, to make this really viscous, disgusting mess. I don't know. I've never actually eaten raw cocoa. Uh, from what I can tell, though, it, it must have been pretty bad. But whatever the case... Nestle wanted that same ruthlessness employed in Venezuela, so they sent the burly Muevos and Fior to the western mountains to begin recruiting local indigenous groups to build the facility. The indigenous that Muevos and Fior recruited were of the Wayu people, who largely dwell in rancherias, which are spread out to prevent their goat herds from mixing. The Wayu were very wary of outsiders, and President Castro Ruiz warned Nestle executives that they could not be bargained with for money. Muevas and Fior approached a large rancheria near present-day Mentira and laid out the company's proposal for building a plant and having the Wayu staff it on the existing ranch grounds. He was immediately rebuffed by the elders that said that they had already said that they would not permit a church to be built there. The interpreters told Muevas and Fior that the Capuchin friars had been attempting to convert them for more than a decade, and had even petitioned the government to enforce a policy that prevented the Wayu from practicing polygamy. Muevas and Fior then instructed the elders to assemble the young men to follow him, and he led the procession down to the local Catholic mission. Once there, Muevas and Fior summoned the priest and demanded access to the body and blood of Christ. When he was refused, he knocked the priest over the head and proceeded inside, doling out the bread and wine freely to the men who promptly went into a drunken frenzy, dancing and debauching the church. The friars summoned the local police, but Muevas and Fior showed them specially made diplomatic documents that allowed him to act with near impunity, and they even turned their heads as he paddled a few of the pleading friars. The young men made a fire from the furniture inside and danced until morning. As they nursed their hangovers the next day, Muevos and Fior promised them that they would convert the church into the plants and that if they agreed to give the Nestle Company exclusive access to their herds and labor, then he would promise them a party like this once a week for good production quotas. The Wayu overwhelmingly agreed. But Muevos and Fior had overstepped his bounds. He got a lot of heat from this as the Catholic Church decried the forceful annexation of one of their churches and the abuse of their friars. 
To keep the Catholics quiet, Muevas and Fior was returned back to the Ivory Coast, and the church was duly compensated for their loss. This did not wholly smooth things over, though, as the friars spread the word of the incident far and wide, leading dioceses throughout the country to forbid their congregants from purchasing any Nestle products. Due to the poverty in Venezuela at the time, this was largely an empty gesture. But the Archbishop of the Maricabo Diocese prophetically declared, Henri Nestle has bowed upon the backs of the poor before the god of mammon in hopes that it may rain down golden riches upon his company. But I declare that the only gold to be rained down will be his blood-bought cheese upon the heads of the exploiters. With tensions at an all-time high with the Catholic Church, Nestle hoped to improve relations by launching the new facility and line of cheese products with a grand opening that would placate and excite the lactose-loving world. Executives believed that the best way to do this was to combine something old with something new. The old would be that age-old Swiss dish that we know as fondue, but was not yet a known commodity outside of Switzerland. And the new would be the Venezuelan goat cheese. They saw proverbial dollar signs everywhere. A new campaign to not only introduce the world to their new brand of goat cheese, but also a reason to indulge. They set a date of April 1st, 1903 to be the grand opening of the facility in which leading confectionery titans and Venezuelan government officials would attend a grand opening and indulge in fondue-themed dishes before members of the press. It was already January at this point, and production had to be ramped up quickly to meet the big deadline. Nestle brought on a new supervisor to oversee the construction and first phase of development. His name was Don El Exprimador, a Spaniard who oversaw the dairies in Nestle's Aragon operation. Exprimador had been on the outs with Nestle executives for impregnating a number of milkmaids in Aragon, but the man got results. So rather than cut him out completely, they decided to move him to the Venezuelan hills to see if his fingers could work the same magic around a goat as they did a cow. Unfortunately, Exprimador had soft hands more befitting a pap than a hammer. I'm being cheeky here, but what I'm saying is that he had neither the hands nor wits of a carpenter. To give you an idea of the layout, the monastery was made up of two main buildings connected by a hallway, one with a bell tower and one without. The one without the bell tower is where the goats were herded in daily to be milked, while the other building is where the cheese was kneaded and solidified. The vats that the cheese was placed in was made up of a shoddy framework, and the tools were actually carved on site out of wood rather than importing metal from Europe. This uh, was really not a good facility by modern standards. Uh, for one, there was no pasteurization process, and second, there was no meaningful way to prevent cross-contamination from the goats to the cheese. Go let your imagination work with that one. But nevertheless, Exprimador kept the men and women separate, with the women doing the milking and the men doing the kneading. Now, ostensibly, he did this to keep them from fraternizing, but uh, he also did this because he took an interest in the Wayu's polygamous lifestyle. With the men separated, he pursued a number of their women in hopes of making them his on-again, off-again lovers. This didn't go unnoticed by the men, but there was little they could do about it, as they were now wholly dependent on the Nestle Corporation for food and other essential supplies. 
In the lead-up to the big day, the grand weekly parties previously promised by Muevos and Fior evaporated, with Exprimador pushing them to work 16-hour days, six days a week, to meet their quotas. To keep the men from mutinying, he took to giving them wine rations twice a day with the promise of a proper celebration after the grand opening. He told them that this was the European way, saying, In la cooperación Nestle, ordenemos duro y jugamos duro. Or, at the Nestle Corporation, we milk hard and play hard. Morale was nevertheless very low, and off-duty policemen were hired to keep the workers in line. April 1st arrived, and with it did leading confectioners the world over who were eager to see what Nestle promised would be a revolutionary product. In the days leading up to the celebration, Nestle employees began arriving to set the scene. They spared no expense, paying for some of Geneva's finest decorators and servers for the event. In the courtyard overlooking the villages of Lake Maracabayo, several tables were set with dozens of fondue bowls set out with the Swiss flag and Nestle's logo. There was a smorgasbord of the finest European breads and locally sourced meats. The bell tower had even been converted into a giant vat to dispense steaming liquid cheese for the fondue. Around noon, dignitaries were shuttled up the mountain to the facility where journalists from all over America and Europe took their photos and interviewed them. Even President Castro Ruiz, desperately in need of good press against the rising taxes and boulevard inflation caused by the recently lifted blockade, made an appearance with the First Lady and his daughter. The stage was set, and by all appearances, it looked as if everything was about to go Nestle's way. However, things were very different behind the scenes. Remember how I said that Nestle employees had been showing up prior to the big day? Well, they didn't mix well with the YU workers at the facility. Exprimador gave a few tours of the facility, during which, in Spanish, he openly mocked the workers and bragged about cuckolding them. But after a few months of working at the facility, the YU men had begun to understand Spanish, and they knew exactly what he was saying. The YU were sick of Exprimador's slave-driving and cuckolding, and they waited for an opportunity to get back at him. They watched the managers keenly, becoming aware of their habits and how to exploit them. Now, on that morning of April the 1st, they saw some of the Swiss employees doing something pretty bizarre. They watched as they snuck up on one another, attached a paper fish to their backs, before the others noticed, pointed, and laughed at them. They did not know it, but they were seeing a game played in French-speaking countries, which is known as Poisson d'Avril, or the April Fish. Now, I had never heard of this until reading about the disaster, but apparently on the day known to the rest of the world as April Fools, instead of pranking somebody, you engage in fish-themed tomfoolery that can include hanging a fake fish on somebody. If you happen to hail from Quebec or have family in French-speaking parts of Europe, I would love to know how widespread is this tradition. Please share it with us on social media. But anyhow, some of the way you men, already half-drunk on that morning's wine, saw this as their chance to get back. As that afternoon's lunch came, a few of them snuck off to a river behind the rancheria and caught a red-tailed catfish, a fairly sizable fish that can grow to be four and a half feet long and 120 pounds. They brought it back to the facility, flopping in a box under some garments. And once inside, they put a hook through its gills and attached it to a looped rope and waited for their opportunity. 
It came shortly before one o'clock when Exprimador ascended the stairs of the bell tower to announce to the crowd that the fondue was served. As he began to address the crowds in English, a couple of Waiyu crept up the stairs with the monster fish squirming in their arms. Without warning, they threw the rope over Exprimador's neck, sending him and the fish into the open vat of molten goat cheese. The carefully regulated temperature was thrown out of whack, causing pressure to build and the cheese to overflow. Unfortunately, few of the attendees understood Exprimador's words as he screamed in anguish from the third-degree burns covering his body. If they had, they may have had time to evacuate. As they sat at their tables, looking quizzically at one another, the intercom picked up Exprimador's final screams. Dios mío, Dios mío, la deliciosa marca Nestle queso es mi está quemando. Están mi ojos, están mi odios. Or, my God. My God, the delicious Nestle brand cheese is burning me. It is in my eyes. It is in my ears. From there, all hell broke loose. It's all happened so quickly. You had come to the fondue extravaganza with such high hopes for Nestle's next best product. For years, you had been working your way up the chain of Nestle Corp. From the early years of cattle wrangling in the hills of Shangnao, to fetching lattes for the director in Vevey. It had all been leading to this moment. To wine and dine the biggest names and confections the world over, and to win Nestle the credibility it needs to earn a seat at the big cheese table. You had ridden your alpaca for miles and arrived with your distinguished guests. Oh, you have outdone yourself this time, Mr. Nestle, says Madame Velavite. I can't wait to have a bite. She's seated next to you with a beehive hairdo carefully done up in golden macaroni curls as she speaks to Henri Nestle II. Well, I certainly hope it's worth coming all the way up here for, replies John Jacob Kraft. I don't know which was uglier or more offensive to the nostrils, those wretched beasts we rode up on or those little native boys pulling them. As the snack food socialites chortle to themselves, you hear a loud harumph from the table next to you. Your whole body goes rigid, and despite the cool breeze of the mountain air, your neck breaks out into a sweat. Isn't that where President Castro Ruiz is seated? No. Check that. Isn't that where the entire first family is seated? Your heart beats hard, your face grows hot, and you cringe inwardly as your mind reels in horror. Steal a glance. You think, maybe he didn't hear. Maybe he's just hungry. Hey! Kraft exclaims as he slaps you on the back. Tell me now, what do you think is hairier around here? The llamas or the women? <laughs> there are more laughs as your stomach shrivels to the size of a walnut. You feel your bowels turn to water and you desperately fumble in your waistcoat for a bit of opium. Oh. No good. Must have left them in the saddlebag. Just before you enter full cardiac arrest, you hear it. Excuse me, but uh, just when will the food be served? I think I speak for all of us when I say this fondue is overdue, says the president to the maitre d'. He's not mad. He didn't hear those ill-timed racist overtures. You begin to relax. Slowly, your blood pressure returns to normal. Your coronary red face returns to its normal beet complexion. 
You let your eyes glide over the guests before letting them rest on the banquet table. Then you smell it. The warm aroma of cheese drifting down from the bell tower. And then, all at once, a voice comes over the loudspeaker. Ahem. Greetings, dignified leaders and orders makers. We at the Nestle Corporation are pleased to unveil the first in our new line of affordable cheeses. As the voice drones on, you begin to imagine what sort of confectionery delights would go best with this new Venezuelan goat cheese, when all of a sudden there is a commotion. High above you, in the bell tower, some sort of ruckus has broken out. With a terrible, wet, thick splash, a man has fallen into the vat of delicious cheese and is screaming. Immediately, white gloves begin spilling over the side as the man thrashes about in the molten cream. The guests look on in horror as a high-pitched whine grows steadily louder. Cheese is now pouring liberally from the bell tower, oozing through the windows and into the courtyard. My God, stop the cheese! You'll drive my guests to dairy! cries President Castro Ruiz as he rises to his feet. From within the bell tower comes an alarming oomph, followed by the sickening sound of something guzzling hard. Behind you, another voice rises up from the fray, the chief of police. Well, this case all this instant, right? Show up your head! His men wade into the gooey goodness and begin stacking sandbags in a desperate attempt to hold back the tide. But alas, it was no use for the police chief was soon overcome. The last you see of his terrified face is as he gargles cheese and is sucked over the edge of the valley in a tidal wave. No! All hell has broken loose. You have just enough time to see a duchess's terrified eyes as several gallons of white, viscous cheese crashes into her, crushing her windpipe. She clatters to the floor and is pulled over the edge. At this point, it's every man for himself kicking against the lactose onslaught. You begin to climb wooden beams, kicking at the thick white rivers as it sucks down debutantes and gentlemen alike over the edge of the cliff. Till your dying day, you'll never forget their screams. Suddenly, there's a searing hot pain creeping up your shins. It's on you, devastating your pain receptors before deadening your nerves. As it slowly encapsulates your body, a dollop of the white stuff splashes your face, seeping into your screaming mouth. The taste is more sour than creamy, and leaves a strange aftertaste when swallowed. It is in these last terrifying moments, before the steaming seepage sweeps you over the edge, the true tragedy of the moment hits you. Oh, it's not even that delicious! Alright, in case it isn't abundantly clear at this point, this was not a true story. Being stuck in the Arctic for the last six months has made us all go a little stir-crazy here at Grizzly HQ, and we wanted to let off some creative steam. Look, I, I really hope this hasn't turned any of you away, as we are still committed to doing serious history on the show, but, I mean, sometimes you just need a break from the seriousness. Anyhow, on that note, we will be producing a variety of bonus content, some funny like this, some more serious, over on Grizzly History Patreon. And by the way, if you're not already subscribed to us on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, head on over and check out some of the short-form content we're doing over there. So, if you are interested in some of that bonus content, head on over to Patreon, where we still have a few of those stickers with our logo on it for the first 10 subscribers, so go ahead and subscribe before supplies run out. 
Anyhow, as always, this has been Grizzly History, hosted by me, Graham Parker, and produced by Michael Ruiz. Not as always, we have had a bit of help from our friends grading the POV portion of this episode, notably from longtime friend of the podcast, Nathan Ragland. Nathan has a podcast of his own called the Postmodern Art Podcast, in which he conducts in-depth interviews with a variety of artists. You can find his show under the moniker Postmodern Art Podcast on YouTube or anywhere where you get your podcast. Also, special thanks to Tristan Webb, who actually gave us the idea to do an April Fool's Day episode. Tristan is a co-host on Setting the Skeen, a podcast where he and a few friends talk about movies. Some popular, some not so popular. I was actually on an episode where we watched Highlander. But anyway, if you want to listen to some jerks talk about movies, go check them out on Setting the Skeen, and that is spelled S-K-E-N-E. Special thanks also goes out to my lovely wife, Nia, for all the fun we had recording screaming and gargling this episode. We are definitely going to have to have her back on if we do something like this again. Grizzly History will be back with our main episode soon and premium content over on Patreon. Until next time, though, stay grisly.